Friday, so it's time for the Sourced Week in Review podcast. My name is Michael Crutcher. Jordan McDonald, it's great to see you because it seems as though a lot of people have decided that today, January 27, is a day off and it's a four-day weekend. Yeah, I suppose the opportunity was just too tempting for, <laughs> for many. The roads this morning, we were just saying... Perfect run. I'm hoping for a similar ride home to Savo. Well, your dedication is noted. I'm glad. I'm glad you're here. And there's a bit to talk about this week too. We yeah, there is. had a chat before about what topics we should put in today's episode. We've got a mix of different things, but we had to leave some out because there's so much happened. But we're going to start with um, a combination we haven't mentioned for a long time here. I Donald know. Trump and Facebook. Why are we talking about Trump and Facebook? He'd be thrilled to be back in the news, I'm sure. Uh, he's back in the news because his ban on Facebook and Instagram is officially over. It's been two years and Meta published a lengthy post on its newsroom website on Wednesday this week that explained that uh, Trump would regain access to his Facebook and Instagram accounts in the coming weeks. Um, the access, though, is conditional. So Meta said that he, they've implemented some guardrails. I like that term. Guardrails. <laughs> I thought that too. It reminds me of bowling when you're a young kid. Um, to deter repeat offences. So if he's found to violate the rules on either platform, he'll face another ban. And that could range from, up from one month up to two years, depending on the severity of the offence. So, so this goes back to the capital attacks two years ago. Goodness, mm. that uh, goes fast. It so does. The day after the capital attacks, mm. and we, we know what happened there, that was the end of Trump, wasn't it, with uh, Facebook and Insta? Yeah, he was booted off the platforms uh, following those, those attacks there. Um, and so it sort of prompted him to create his own social media platform, Truth Social, um, <laughs> the irony in that, isn't it? Um, and that platform, you know, consists of, of statistically, I looked at some research, I'm not just pulling it out. <laughs> it uh, does consist of some mostly right-leaning and pro-Trump users, which isn't surprising. Uh, and those users actually came across to the platform because they chose to stick with Trump and get rid of the platforms that booted him. Um, but Twitter was the other major platform that decided to get rid of Trump as well when the uh, capital attacks had occurred. And he's since been reinstated there, but he's yet to tweet, which <laughs> I'm, uh, I've no doubt he's many. He's got 87 million followers on there. I bet they're all just hanging in suspense <laughs> yeah. for those first words. Um, but look, for me, I, I wonder how much longer he's going to pretend he doesn't want and need these platforms. You know, he's running for president again and we know he relies heavily on the enormous reach that he gains through social media. Facebook in particular was his not-so-secret weapon. Previous campaign, he spent tens of millions of dollars yeah. on Facebook ads there uh, when competing against Joe Biden and Joe also spent a fair bit too. But um, look, he's also there's also been some, some leaks supposedly from his campaign party that it would be it's been advised that he needs Facebook and other social media if he wants a chance at winning yeah. this next campaign. Yeah, and obviously a lot of followers there on those um, different platforms. Look, you could see this coming. We've spoken before about Facebook and <laughs> where it sits in terms of uh, TikTok's emergence mm. as a real uh, force in social media. And we know that Trump, as you just mentioned there, 
Trump wants access to people, particularly some of those donors who can help his campaign. Mm-hmm. And we know that Facebook, as you've mentioned there, Facebook needs revenue. And so True. there's yeah. a lot that would come this way if Trump was to really fire up his election campaign and try to engage with people on Facebook. So we've said this before on this podcasts and it's something that all journalists should be taught on their first day at uni if that's where they start follow the money Mm -hmm. it's usually the answer to your question and on this occasion there's lots of benefits for both parties here and there'll be continued coverage and uh, and outrage i'm sure at different elements but there's a, a flip side that's interesting and that's obviously if trump does get back onto facebook and really ramp things up how does that then factor in for the Democrats? Because I'm sure the Democrats would like to see Trump in the middle of a uh, Republican fight in terms of who's going to represent uh, that ticket when time comes. So Republican politics in general, I should say, that side, of whether that's split or not. So Mm. that could be another side of it. But as we say with Trump, it's never boring. No, never is. It works in his favour often. Yeah, we do learn a lot about the different elements of social media and audience engagement through whatever happens with Mm. Trump. But in a related way, Jordan, there is something we'll mention just briefly, and that is some some court cases in the US at the moment which could uh, significantly impact uh, free speech. Yeah, no, the Sydney Morning Herald wrote um, about this on Wednesday. Uh, There's a story that looks at three key cases in the US where the outcomes could really prevent social media platforms from removing user content that doesn't really align with their beliefs. So these cases all centre around a section of the Common Decency Act called Section 230. Now, does this exist purely in the US, this act? Or is yeah, this, 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 is yep, a, okay. this is a US act, yes. Now, what this act does, it essentially pardons digital platforms from responsibility for the content posted by its users as long as they aren't aware of any crime that's been committed. So the Republicans in the US have been supporting the cases um, against the, the companies because they feel the platforms have censored some of the conservative thoughts expressed. Um, ironically, the Democrats want to see the Section 230 rewritten to allow for more moderation of the content and want the law to force the removal of hate speech, extremism and politically inspired falsehoods. So... Well, it's likely that the Supreme Court won't hear the two cases, and the two cases are from Florida and Texas, and if they eventuate, that won't happen until the end of the year. The The decisions that could be made from those cases could really remake the internet. Yeah, and under the legislation called the Communications Decency Act, which has got a name all of itself there, the mm-hmm. Decency Act. That's it. So let's see what happens there, but just wanted to flag that in relation to some of the news of the week. Now, the news of the week, Jordan, of course, included the fact that the Oscar nominations were released. Yes. And there were a few Australians in there, Kate Blanchett and Catherine Martin among Mm. the nominees. Well done to them. And also Lachlan Pendragon, a Brisbane boy who spent most of the lockdown for COVID making a stop animation film called... An ostrich told me the world is fake and I think I believe it. That sounds very COVID-born, doesn't it? It is. True. So, Lachlan, congratulations. A Griffith University uh, student. He's been nominated for the Best Animated Short Film for his 11-minute film. And if there was a category in the Oscars for the Best Title of a Film, he'd be nominated there as well. I reckon. 
So this, it's a stop-motion comedy about an office worker who learns from an ostrich that he's living in a stop-motion universe. Right. And as the okay. title tells you, he thinks he believes it. So good luck to him. So, But that's not the blockbuster that will get people interested in the Oscars again to the level that the film industry and broadcasters would like. We've discussed this here before on the angst and the interest around the TV audiences for the Oscars but yes. also other big award shows and mm-hmm. they've plummeted in recent years, uh, coinciding with concerns from some in the industry that the Oscars have just become too funky for their own good. And we've mentioned before a podcast <coughs> recently with Peter Jackson, the creator of the Lord of the Rings film trilogy with his partner Fran Walsh, uh, The Return of the King, the final instalment of that series won 11 Oscars. Yep. Huge haul. And in that podcast, Jackson did say the way the Oscars seem to have gone since any doubts that they would win 11 Oscars this time. Right, so, okay. So, Jordan, then have this year's nominations, have they welcomed in the more popular movies that are expected to try to get more people watching the Oscars? I think they have. The, the total box office gross for this year's Oscars Best Picture nominees is the highest of what it's been in 13 years, um, led by Avatar, of course, Way of Water, and then Top Gun Maverick. Have you seen Avatar yet? I haven't seen Avatar yet. Okay. I haven't found the three hours spare. Um, <laughs> and you're at work today, so... I am at work today, yes, yes. Um, but look, Top Gun Maverick marks the first Oscar nomination for producer uh, Jerry Bruckheimer. We've actually mentioned him on the podcast before. Um, behind, he's also behind some other massive hits over the five decades in the business, but he's never received an Oscar. That's right. So all of those movies that he's been involved in over the years, so many of them... And he's never received an Oscar nomination, but now he has. Exactly. So he may not have uh, experienced the love from the Academy just yet, but he has certainly felt it from the audiences, particularly last year with Maverick, who have flocked to the movies. Yeah. So, Jordan, we're looking at some other Best Picture ones this year that would probably some names there that people may not know too much? Yeah, look, there's a lot in here that I don't know, but I'm not the biggest movie buff either. But some of the other nominations, there's Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which received 11 nominations. Um, And then you've got Netflix's All Quiet on the Western Front. Yeah, noticeable for a streaming service-initiated movie there. You've got The Banshees of Inner Sharon, Baz Luhrmann's Elvis, and you've got The Fablemans... Tar, which I think is Kate Blanchett's movie. It is, Tar, yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm not even pronouncing that right. There is some uh, alliteration there. And then you've got Women Talking and Triangle of Sadness. That makes up the full list for Best Picture. Of course, ten films rather than five. That's been expanded a while ago. Again, <coughs> said by some to try to generate more interest. So, Jordan, does this mean with this list of nominees, will you be – more interested in this year's Oscars ceremony? Will you be looking for another Will Smith, Chris Rock showdown from the slap fest last year? Um, I won't go looking for it. Um, I don't think I'll be looking at the Oscars any differently this year. I'll probably look at the results, mostly just to get an idea of what movies are worth watching. Um, you know, we talk about how much there is to pick from with streaming and, and, and yeah. the cinemas today. So for me, this sort of just narrows down what I should be looking at. Uh, a bit more. But yeah, I don't think I'll tune in. Yeah, well, I'm interested to see if the Academy votes for some of these big ticket movies like Top Gun 
and Avatar mm-hmm. um, to win or if they're just happy to have them in the running to generate interest. It's, it's an important ceremony for the Oscars because we know the streaming services are keen to get broadcast rights for these types of ceremonies. Yes. The only problem for the Academy is that streaming services don't get the same amount of potential viewers as free-to-air TV can get, mm-hmm. so we know that. And the Oscars' current TV deal is locked away till 2028, so nothing's going to oh, change, right. you wouldn't think, in the next few years. No. While the Emmys, the Grammys and the Tonys are all up for grabs after 2026. So there's a few years there for those big award ceremonies to uh, hopefully turn things around, otherwise... It may be a really interesting decision in a few years' time. So we mentioned Netflix, Jordan, with uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, which has been seems to pop up in my social media feed all the time. Ad, ads for that. You so yeah, I just well, get I've not them seen it once. See, so you're not old like me. No, apparently. So maybe it's just in my algorithm. They think this Must guy's be. sort of old and into war stuff. Must be. But having said that, I actually haven't gone any further and looked at it yet. But now. That brings us to Netflix because Mm. there's quite an interesting development which actually happened last Friday but um, too late for our deadline. So this is the week in review. So we're reviewing the week and this was early in the week but it's worth talking about. Yeah, it is. So just over a week ago, Netflix CEO Reed Reed Hastings, he called time in his role as the boss of the company there and Mark's just... Uh, just over two decades that he has been the boss at Netflix and he essentially took the company from being a, a DVD business to a global streaming giant, which has ultimately changed the way the world consumes um, entertainment content. He's going to remain at the company as the chairman of the board. So he's one of these guys that was there at the ground level, yep. um, really guide the company through mm-hmm. and more come to a bit later there's there's a bunch of these different people who uh have very interesting insights yeah absolutely so he's left the company now in not one person's hands but two and they are greg peters and ted sarandos they're going to be co-ceos um greg has previously overseen the product and advertising business and ted has been the long-standing netflix boss in hollywood so hastings exchanged the leadership and then I must admit it's a pretty interesting time in sort of Netflix's history. Yeah, for sure. They're facing some pretty unprecedented challenges. Uh, you know, they had the whole year where they, you know, last year they lost subscribers for the first time yep. um, in its history. Now they've added on an ad-supported option to try and combat some price-sensitive users or the less glamorous term being password sharers. <laughs> uh, and then there's increased competition I mean, among streaming platforms anyway. So the two men that they've taken up the job. They sat for a really interesting interview with Bloomberg not, not long ago and they offered some really useful insights. It's quite a long interview, so I've just pulled out a few of the key highlights. Yeah, and we've spoken here about, I guess, the way that the shares, the share prices of these different streaming services and an indication as to the confidence in their financial futures and mm. we saw some adverse share reaction last year. So why do you think... Streaming still a good business, and where will the growth come from moving forward? What what was their answer to that? So both men explain that they've developed a business that isn't growing as fast as they'd like, but it is growing in the three things that matter most to them, at least, and that is engagement, revenue, and profit. They say the sector is growing dramatically and at the demise of linear TV, which we know and we've spoken about a fair yep. bit. They also went on to say that there's peop- that people often talk about Netflix in the one broad statement, you know, but in reality, 
there's Netflix and there's everyone else trying to figure out how to do what Netflix is doing. Yeah, what about their thoughts on the subscriber ceiling? Like as in have, you know, all the people who are going to get Netflix already got it and are they moving on elsewhere, etc. So were they asked about what happens in trying to extract, you know, more money from existing viewers or do they think they can get more viewers? Yeah. Yeah, so they said that there's many, many countries around the world that they have had very little penetration with uh, as opposed to the US where they feel like they've maybe hit that ceiling a bit more. Um, when they talked about that, they mentioned India, Indonesia and Korea as good examples. Yep. You know, they've just kicked off a new gear of growth in India, which they're really excited about. Um, and so far, they've already seen what they've previously seen in Korea in Japan. You know, the, the, their ability to deliver content on the local tastes can really broaden that market for them. And of course, the most important one, Jordan. Yes. What about the password sharers? Yes. Will there be any action here on that facet of Netflix? Yeah, well, it must have been a serious moment in this interview because Greg stood up to answer this one solo. Uh, and he said those people, they know how to watch Netflix and they've obviously watched something on Netflix that they've loved. Our job over the next few years is to win them back. So okay. some of these users, they're password sharing because they're more price sensitive or less engaged or both. But if we deliver, you know, and they're referring to their popular shows from uh, last year, Wednesday Adams every week or a glass onion every week, we'll get the vast majority back, they reckon. It's not easy, though. No, that's pretty demanding. <laughs> Let's every give you a week. blockbuster every week, a show and a movie. Well, good that's luck enormous. with that. Oh, I agree. Good luck. We flagged last week, Jordan, that Microsoft had a real interest in investing in OpenAI, mm. which is the creator of ChatGPT. Yep. And ChatGPT, we know, is, continues to cause these massive waves with its ability to complete tasks that we really haven't seen AI, AI offer to the public before, but yes. it is now. So a few days ago, and you brought this up last week, news mm -hmm. broke that Microsoft would spend an estimated 14 billion Australian overall with OpenAI. And there's advantages for both parties here, quite obvious advantages. Microsoft is competing with a bunch of different um, places, Amazon.com, Meta platforms um, and Alphabet to really try and get stuck into this technology that generates texts and images and other media mm -hmm. in response to not a whole lot of input. Um, so that's what Microsoft is, is looking at trying to keep up with. At the same time, OpenAI needs Microsoft's funding and its cloud computing power to get these volumes of data through and to run these models, which are quite complex models. Absolutely. That al you know, allows <coughs> the services like ChatGPT to do what they do and it is, it is quite amazing what they do. So let, let's get set to see Microsoft use OpenAI's models in its own products. So yep. maybe you get uh, some help when you're punching out emails in Microsoft Outlook. Yeah. And what will Microsoft Word do with um, the likes of ChatGPT? Yeah, maybe you just whisper in, say, can you, can you finish this essay for me in 30 seconds and just let it go? Well, that's it. That's, it's, it's, this sort of thing's coming to the likes of Microsoft it Word is. and it's coming fast. But this morning news broke of BuzzFeed, uh, an established media um, provider on the digital channels, 
it's hooked up with OpenAI to create content for its <laughs> site, including quizzes mm. and who knows what else will follow. And this uh, comes after the news that Bud, BuzzFeed will cut its workforce by about 12%. Mm -hmm. The BuzzFeed CEO has been quoted as saying, this is interesting, the creative process will increasingly become AI-assisted and technology-enabled. If the past 15 years of the internet have been defined by algorithmic feeds, I didn't say that well, <laughs> that curate and recommend content, the next 15 years will be defined by AI and data helping create, personalise and animate the content. We see the breakthroughs in AI opening up a new era of creativity that will allow humans to harness creativity in new ways with endless opportunities and applications for good. In publishing, AI can benefit both content creators and audiences, inspiring new ideas and inviting audience members to co-create personalised content. So right. there's a long explanation, but let's get to the short version. What did the share market think about this? BuzzFeed, its stocks went up by as much as 157%. Wow. After this news. So the market okay. likes this and the stock was already trading higher after a separate report said Meta was paying BuzzFeed a stack of cash to bring more creators to Facebook and Insta. Uh, now, okay. this will, of course, cause night terrors for journalists worried about AI replacing them. And there's been speculation already that some media outlets have been using AI to generate stories. Now, we know that media executives will be looking for whatever they can from AI mm -hmm. because of the obvious advantages. For one, AI bots work 24 hours a day. They're not taking today off to have a four-day weekend. No, okay. technically no. They don't need leave and they don't require HR frameworks. They're pretty easy to handle. Of course, the main interest for media outlets is that AI is far cheaper than employees if the deal's done properly. Yes. However, there are a few problems at this stage with AI. Jordan, you conducted your own experiment to see if ChatGPT could provide us with a preview story of the Australian Open Women's Tennis Final, which will be played tomorrow between Anna Sabalenka and the Wimbledon champ, Alina Rybakina. Jordan, how did ChatGPT do? What did you do to start with? Uh, it went poorly. Um, I gave it the prompt... I said, write a new story that will be a preview for the 2023 Australian Open Women's Tennis Final. Okay, pretty basic prompt, that fairly one. Fairly deep, fairly basic. Yeah. Yep. So I, uh, it spat out, and I'll only read the first paragraph because um, you'll get the picture pretty quick. And it says, the 2023 Australian Open Women's Tennis Final is set to be a thrilling showdown between two of the top players in the world. On one side... There is the defending champion and world number one, Serena Williams. The American superstar has dominated the sport for more than two decades, winning a record tying 24 Grand Slam titles in her illustrious career. On the other side, there is the rising star, Naomi Osaka. The Japanese player has been make making waves on the tour in recent years, winning her first Grand Slam title at the 2018 US Open and following it up with a win at the 2020 Australian Open. Well, there's only one minor problem there, Jordan. That would be that Serena Williams and Naomi Osaka didn't play in this year's Australian Open. Not at all. Chat GPT, what are you doing? Yeah. In fact, the last time that 
Serena Williams won the Australian Open was 2017 and ChatGPT has got her down as the defending champion. That's it. So I don't think we can give ChatGPT a job in a newsroom on that effort there. No, no, look, this this is starting to... While there's so much coverage about how exciting the AI is, we have to realise and remind ourselves that there are still limitations to this software. You mentioned before that, you know, the bots can work 24 hours, but for most, in most cases, you need to be there to operate these bots. They don't operate on their own. Um, so they're only as useful as you make them yep. out to be. Um, for me, I looked back at a couple of the other limitations. The biggest one is probably, and as we saw then, uh, that the information can be wrong. And that's because the most recent training sort of framework that it has is from September 2021. So yep. it's got all of 2022 yet to be sort of updated yep. with. And um, ChatGPT also has no access to the internet or real-time information. So you're not going to get any information from the internet or any location-specific yep. information, which is, again, probably why we got the result we did with that earlier prompt. Um, another big one would be, I think, the inability to make qualitative judgments. Someone has said, you know, in a, in a use case, it'd be great if if my chat GPT could sit on my phone and, you know, if, I'm, if I've had a few too many drinks yep. or if I'm blowing up at a mate, you know, to step in and go, maybe you should rephrase that or maybe you should stop. <laughs> you know, I'm sure many people would appreciate that, you know, if they've sent a, an employer something unfavourable. Yeah. Um, but it hasn't got the ability to do that. You can't make any qualitative judgments like that. Um, and lastly, plagiarism, which is something we spoke about last week. Yeah. Um, you know, that people are starting to come up with ways to pick up or detect AI um style material. Uh, I don't know if the schools, they're particularly concerned about plagiarism, but I've done a fair bit of experimenting and so have a lot of other people with assignments and, and yeah. specific topics. And it becomes pretty obvious pretty quick that there's only so many ways that it can answer a question. So yep. if you're at school and you've got the same assignment question as everyone else in your grade and you're all asking chat GPT, you're bound to get <laughs> numerous and several of the same version of the assignment, maybe altered paragraphs rearranged. But, you know, that's when your plagiarism, uh, plagiarism is going to get pick it up for sure. And I wonder if we have this same conversation next year, the year after. I wonder then whether we're typing in that request that you typed in and AI is spitting out the right answer for us. Yeah, I'd, look. <laughs> I'd be interested to know. It's going to move fast, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. um, but right now Microsoft's in there. Let's see what comes of this Microsoft Union with ChatGPT, how different it makes people's jobs. But it's not surprising, but it's going to be a very interesting ride. And the challenge, I think, for people is to work out that even though these things are there, what is it that humans do uh, that AI can't do? Mm -hmm. And that'll be the challenge to keep in front of that. Are you Absolutely. watching the Australian Open finals this weekend? Um, I might have a look. I've got the I've got to work tonight, but then tomorrow is one of my favourite days of the year. It's the hottest one hundred. Oh, of course, yes. Being the music man that I am, yeah. At social occasions, I'm often handed the the phone and say, "You pick the music." Yep. So it's my favourite day because I don't have to pick any music. It's picked for me. And are you going to any uh, hottest one hundred type function? Um, no, I'm hosting a few mates at my place for the barbecue. Thinking yep. about doing a big W blow up pool, which will likely get a hole in it. Oh, of about course. About four o'clock in the afternoon because yeah. it's rubbish. 
Yeah. Um, perfect for tomorrow. Perfect for tomorrow. A single yeah. day use probably. Yeah. And yeah. look, yeah. are there any songs we'll know in the Hottest 100 list? Um, you and I both know. Yeah, me. Mm, maybe. I'm, I'm not sure. You into Gang of Youths at all? No, not no. no. I mm. think the answer is probably no. Probably no, then yeah. Oh, ballpark music. Ballpark though. will be in there. I oh, reckon. They need, well, that, that's a it's an excellent album. Yeah, ballpark weirder, will probably be in there. I reckon. Weirder and weirder, which I do have at home on vinyl, and I do. Yeah, oh, so there good. you go. I'm up there with it. Very good. Very good. We'll have a great weekend. You too.